my father was always older than most fathers, but he was older and really brilliant and dynamic. It was shocking for everybody. Like he, he was one person and then he was entirely another over a following that incident. I remember thinking nobody else understands. I remember thinking that really clearly thing because nobody else was in the same situation. When I look back and think, God, I did. So by the time I was, you know, 27, I'd lost my dad and my brother. What those things make you realize actually is that life is really precious and, and volatile at times. It's definitely made me more resilient. I, I do worry but I, about things because of course everyone does. But I just kind of at the same time think that was a real problem and none of these things are actually a real problem. Hello and welcome to On A Good Day with me, Elizabeth Callahan, And me, Julia Ajayi. This is a podcast that looks at brain injury and its impact on all involved. In today's episode, we speak to Siobhan Greenhill, who cared for her father after he had a number of strokes when she was only young. Siobhan is a West End performer, entrepreneur, mother of three, and a dear friend and business partner of mine, but from a young age has encountered huge family tragedy. Siobhan lost her brother, Lewis, when he was just 13 years old, and eventually her father, Barry. If anything, though, her past struggles have helped push her to live her life to the full with resilience and gratitude. Welcome to the podcast, Siobhan. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for asking me. It's absolutely my privilege. Your father first had his stroke in his early 60s. Talk to us a little bit about your dad, the kind of person that he was and and the kind of the circumstances around what happened because you were quite young at the time, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was still in primary school. So he was such a vibrant and powerful man. That's the only way I can describe my father. He was he grew in grew up in workshop in Nottinghamshire very kind of working class background and actually originally trained as a pathologist and that, that was kind of the most educated person in his family that was kind of it was very kind of his parents used to run the local post office it was a very sort of small environment and he he was always somebody that had big dreams so he trained as a pathologist did that for a little bit and then i just think saw an opportunity to to, to better things for his family so i should say i wasn't his family at this point he, he there was a marriage previous to the one where he married my mother um and they moved down from nottinghamshire um down to london actually um southeast london sydney and he actually completely changed career paths and worked his way up so he was actually the um, managing director for the UK for Sun Life of Canada well that was Confederation Life which became Sun Life of Canada so he was he had a huge role but he was brilliant at it he was such a dynamic man one of those kind of great at leading people had a huge team of underwriters big social life real life and soul of the party and so when this happened, it was a real shock because I just think when you see those powerful people completely change overnight, his first stroke was very severe. And I, I remember it really clearly. We'd gone to church on the Sunday morning and it was Harvest Festival. And I used to sing in the choir with my sister. And and it was unlike, he used to love that. He was super proud of us. And um, he didn't get out of bed. And my mum said, he just, just feels, he doesn't feel right. He feels really tired. So we went off to church, did that, came home and he was still in bed. And I was like, what's the matter, daddy? What, you know, and, and by then I didn't know because I was so young, but you could see when my mum when my saw, she knew what had happened and called an ambulance straight away. 
And I can't, obviously, I'm now 44. I can't remember how long he was in hospital, but I remember it being a really long time. Um, and it had really severely affected his left side. Um, he wasn't able, you know, we had to all have manual handling training to learn how to use a hoist when he eventually came home. Um, and we converted one of the lounges downstairs into his bedroom, which was, as a child, I just couldn't understand. And my father was always older than most fathers, but he was older and really brilliant and dynamic, like I say. So it had never really been a thing before until this. And I just think it's shocking. It was shocking for everybody. Like he, he was one person and then he was entirely another over a following that incident. Um and it's fair to say that he never fully recovered from that. But obviously he went on to have subsequent strokes and fell a couple of times, broke both his hips. Um, but he was, he was, I think the word is probably, which I now probably would say, indomitable. You know, like they just keep, he just kept going, kept going, kept going. Like resilience, like nobody's business. I've got lots of comedy stories, which I will tell you about. <laughs> but he... Um, he was just brilliant in the face of such, such adversity. You know, on the third stroke he had, he lost the ability to swallow and actually had to have a peg feed fitted. So we had to, and then at nighttime, he had to go to bed and be plugged into a machine that would feed him directly into his stomach overnight, every night. And that, I mean, horrendously difficult. And before he had his second major stroke, um, so the day he had that um he was obviously really, really not very well. But the day after that, my brother passed away, um, aged 13 from a heart attack. So obviously when a family is hit with a tragedy like that, I mean, my my brother was completely healthy, com just dropped dead and, and had this heart attack. It was a while playing tennis. It was just awful. And my dad trying to recover from that was... I mean, he, he was straight away, he was like, I need to be able to walk behind Lewis's coffin. And we knew the funeral was going to be within the week. And he, could, he, could, he just wasn't capable. He never really recovered. He was already, he, he was constantly walking with a stick anyway before the second stroke. And then when that happened, he, he, he was basically carried down the aisle of the church with my, by my stepbrothers. But, but I think he showed me so much about like I say, resilience and in the face of mass adversity, when the easiest thing would be to do just to completely give up and pack down, he just wouldn't, he just wouldn't at all. Um, he actually pushed and pushed and would choke and wouldn't accept this swallow thing when he lost a swallow and, and actually regained it. So he could eat, <laughs> he could eat um, some things as he would still choke badly. He was supposed to have like thick liquid because that was the easiest thing to swallow, but not with lumps in. So you could make almost what I would term baby food for him. And he could swallow that um, because he just would try. But then I, I'd go over, you know, go home and he'd like be trying to eat a fruit scone in the kitchen and going, <laughs> literally choking. And you'd be like, this was consistent. He'd do it for ages, like Christmas dinners. He'd try and eat like, but actually the doctor said, you know, our prognosis was people don't get out of this situation. But I think from doing that, he had stimulated some sort of muscle growth. And, and then and they and they said, you know, it's actually they, they removed it. But even then, he didn't tell us he was doing that. He got a taxi to the hospital and um, and my mom, my mother was working, got a taxi to the hospital 
and um, had arranged to have this operation to have the peg bead removed. And then um, called my mum and said, "Can you come and pick me up, please?" And she said, "Where are you? You've been, you know, you've been ages." And um, he said, "Oh, I've just had an operation, but they won't let me go on my own." <laughs> she had no idea. None of us had any idea. It was just hilarious. It was stuff like that constantly. Resilience, isn't it? I guess it, so, it is. And we'll come on to that because that has obviously come out on you completely Siobhan um but sort of going back and 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 as a family unit you know that must have put an enormous strain on you guys particularly after Lewis dying yeah it was just horrendous we had this period of time where I just I just I didn't you know when you kind of live in in like shock mode and I just was just thinking I just remember thinking Life is just really hard. It was just really hard. And you were so young, Siobhan, weren't you? I mean, I, I just... Yeah, I was. I'd actually had some experience of stroke before that because my, my dad's mum, who used to live with us, my grandma, Grandma Laura, she um, she lived with us and she had a stroke and I found her in the middle of the night because her bedroom was next to mine in our house. That was... A, it was huge and, and, and obviously because it had happened in the middle of the night, wasn't discovered straight away and the results were devastating and she didn't live beyond that so I'd had this experience of it so I think and I think especially when you're young and you've had grandma had a stroke and she died and then your father has a stroke it was horrific and then so there was that but we just kind of carried on and then and and after my my grandma passed away I I lost all my hair like it's really weird all my hair fell out they thought I had um some form of like scarlet fever but I think it was just a, a grief thing I didn't go bald or anything, but like lots and lots and lots of my hair fell out. And I remember them sort of saying, you know, it's quite a lot to take early on. And that can only have been about 18 months before dad's stroke. So it was quite fresh in our minds, you know, living because that was my first funeral and all of those kind of things, you know, and as a child, you don't forget those memories. do. And then, of course, my dad. So it was, yeah, it was really... It was really difficult. And also, I just think he was always an older father, but he'd never been like a, he was always a very vibrant older father. And he was suddenly a frail old man. And I was, I think we were all constantly terrified that he was going to die because that had been our prior experience. Can I also ask you, Sean, I mean, through that very difficult time and you were saying you were at primary school when your dad had his first stroke and not very long before you'd lost your grandmother. Um, My children and also Elizabeth as well were very young when their dads had had their strokes. How was that for you with thinking about your own friendships and, you know, friends coming back home and you kind of talking to friends at such a young age about that? Do you have any recollection of that for you I remember thinking nobody else understands I remember thinking that really clearly thing because nobody else was in the same situation and for you know at all not even close thank goodness but still you know and um I remember them not really understanding and I mean obviously you don't and actually we we were always very sociable as a family but we certainly started to do a lot less of that once my dad was moved home because it just practically was just too much you know because he was like I say we'd converted one of the lounges and and, and as a family it did, it did impact our lives sort of socially that way of course because we couldn't really take him anywhere it was a lot for my mum 
Um, and I was the eldest. It's worth saying I was the eldest. So I had two two younger siblings. It was a lot. So I, I just really remember thinking it was quite isolating and talking to my teachers, my primary school teachers, um, quite a lot about it. And they were quite supportive. And I remember things like them coming to the house and things, which, of course, doesn't really happen so much now. Do you know what I mean? Which seemed kind of huge at the time. But I think they were... So I think the community really folded around us. But obviously, I mean, this was years ago for me. I, I just remember that feeling. I definitely remember that feeling of isolation because I remember feeling that again when my brother died in a slightly different way because uh, no one felt able to talk to us about my brother my brother's passing either because no they just didn't know what to say when a 13 year old healthy boy suddenly passes away like do you know what I mean but it was it was sort of you end up feeling you just feel really isolated and 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 so confused and so like oh and like you say it was I was really quite young like much like your own did you have any counselling or anything like that? I mean, I feel that now that's that's a vocabulary that we use now, but actually all of that time ago, it wasn't really no. talked about in the same way that we talk about it now, no. was it? No, I remember, I remember really clearly, and this is such an odd memory, but it was stuck in my brain. My dad had one of those big fat, like double briefcases, and my mum was a classic stay-at-home mom at the time and had no idea how any of the bills were paid or anything and I remember going with her into the Sandhurst branch of NatWest Bank and she walked we had an appointment to see the bank manager all three of us were with her and she said Barry's in hospital I don't know how long he's going to be in there I have no idea how much money we have or if any how any of the bills are paid please can you help me and I remember just sitting there thinking this is like a scene from a film I remember thinking that where we all sat there sort of going what's going on so I remember feeling that was probably the first time I became aware of finances and financial things as well but actually looking back do you know what I mean because I, I could see my mum was scared understandably um, yeah, yeah. Because and, and often and that is the case uh, yeah no I felt that a bit when Paul had his stroke was often he had looked after a lot of that side of stuff so I had to learn very quickly where all of those oh, money was all the, yeah, where yeah. all the bills were coming from and and take that ownership of that and I, I do think that that I, it's so funny when you start to talk about these things isn't it? you suddenly realize I think that was probably without even realizing massively in my subconscious programming because I was definitely like I need to earn my own money so that would never happen to me so I remember that fear you know when you think I think in any scary situation a child looks to the adult or the parent or the the voice of authority in the room and you think don't you it's like you know if there's turbulence you look at the pilot and see if they're scared do you know what I mean in, on an airplane for example or you know and I think because I, I knew that my mum was frightened and it was a completely unspoken thing but then I and that must have been very frightening for you yeah. to see her being frightened yeah and of course with what was to come, you know, I, horribly, I've seen her go through so much worse, you know. And, um, but it was just, yeah, I, I do, I really remember that feeling. And I remember that, and that kind of like, we, there's no one to talk to about this kind of feeling. Do you know what I mean? That aloneness, isn't it, that you were speaking about, mm. that loneliness? There just wasn't counselling. Even when my brother passed away, we never, we didn't have counselling. There wasn't such a thing, was there, like you say. We didn't talk about things then. Even, you know, in that sort of fairly short period of time, things have really changed, thank goodness. 
it's something that you've revisited since then in terms of having any you know conversations with with your I know you have a sister or other family members about that yeah I mean we've spoken about it quite a lot I think when my dad finally passed away um we went and we went through everything you know and clearing out I mean he was just hilarious you know we got clearing out the flat and where, where that he'd moved to and you know money stashed here there and everywhere and like hilarious like he was he went through this phase where he would just he wouldn't throw anything away and it was like it, it, so we're, we're moving from a seven bedroomed family house into a two bedroomed flat which was his and he just wouldn't throw anything so there was just stuff the one of the rooms was just stuff and he and, but he just couldn't have it any other way you know and when he did pass away and just going through things and, and thinking about and, and then my sister and I spoke about it a lot then, because I think by that point we'd had so much sort of, it felt like so much. I mean, this was happening over a period of like 10, 20 years, but, it you know, it just feels like so much tragedy or because you don't you don't recover from these things, do you? You ladies will know you just learn to live with them sort of thing. So yeah, I have. I've never actually had any formal counselling, but I'm quite. I, I'm such a talker, as you're probably gathering, that I'm. <laughs> that I think I've never really pent it up, and I'm very much kind of like, you know, and and I assume that everybody else is the same <laughs> in any situation. So when I'm sort of going, what what can I do? You know, tell me how you're feeling. Blah blah blah. blah. You know, I guess again, probably trying to be completely the opposite of what I experienced when I went through my storms in life. So I do genuinely think I'm I'm actually good. And I just think, you know, particularly with the death of my brother, I've kind of, I was explaining this, you know, we, we talk about this all the time in, in our sort of family and in my sort of close circles, you know, I, I feel like nothing can ever be that bad again. Do you know what I mean? It was that was just horrific, and then and we had things happen since, like horribly. We do a lot of work with uh, Cry Cardiac Risk in the Young, um, running screening programs in his memory, um, because a lot of these deaths are preventable. It's just that people don't know it's an undiagnosed heart condition, and um, so obviously my own children were screened, and then we found out that my youngest daughter has a variant of the same condition that killed my brother. So that was literally, that was probably. I had about two weeks that was probably my lowest ebb because I was just terrified. You know, when you've just had one thing that's like, ah, uh, and I, but now I realise that actually knowledge is power and we're in a much more fortunate position than other families where horribly it might manifest in the way that it did with Lewis, you know, where it's just sudden and fatal and, you know, so we're never going to, touch wood never going to get to that stage because they they look at her so much it would be very easy to go into like a loop of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy of sad and tragedy and all of these things do you know what I mean it's easy yeah. isn't it and I do think it takes a decision not to because what those things make you realize actually is that life is really precious yeah and and volatile at times and actually, and I think when the unimaginable has happened, like with my brother, um, it was just, I don't know. I don't know. I, I remember ringing people to say, because my mum couldn't do it, and obviously my dad had just had a stroke. So I remember ringing people to say, Lewis has died, like all our family and friends. And they were going, you mean Barry? And I was like, no, dad had a stroke yesterday, but he's alive, but Lewis is dead. 
it was it was a ridiculous conversation for an eighteen year old girl to be having. Like, born it is. It was like you must have. You just took on so much. And my mum was age. broken. It was just horrific. So we had dad. They brought dad home the night that Lewis died, but we had to have a nurse, and they put him in bed and sedated him. So he had like a lifted bed because he by then he oh no he hadn't broken his hips yet but his mobility wasn't good at all because his left side had been so damaged so he was very sort of shuffly walky two sticks anyway do you know what I mean so they got him in bed and the nurse came and sedated him and of course and he was just in a, he he understood but it was he was just like almost like silently crying it was just horrendous and then my they I put my mum to bed who was obviously as you would imagine having when her son was pronounced dead at midday that day it was just horrific and it was like they were both in their own worlds going through hell do you know what I mean and I just remember standing there thinking I, I literally didn't know what to do so I just I just laid next to my mum and held on to her until she fell asleep because dad was drugged out of it so I didn't really know what else to do and slowly her breathing stopped and she, I think she just, just you know, her body just shut down. And then my, I went to sort my sister out. So and they were like, their bedrooms was one end of the house opposite each other. So I went into my sister's room and she was the same and I was just sat with her. She's 18 months younger than me. And I, and I was terrified to walk from there to the other end of our house. We had like a long alleyway and my brother's room was off of it. And I was terrified he was, I was gonna see him or something. And I, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it. So I slept on my sister's bedroom floor for like a week because <laughs> I just couldn't be on my own. But it, it was that realization that there's nobody to look after me because I can't. So has that made you more resilient? Oh, I mean, yeah, it sounds, <laughs> it sounds like. I'm, I am like. It has. I am, yeah. I'm not really a control freak in terms of I'm like, my way or the highway I'm not like that at all but I have to, I do too much 100% <laughs> because I'm just that person and but I don't mind I'm kind of like I say I'm like you know I'm here once and I do have this like weird guilt of you know when I look back and think god I did so by the time I was you know 27 yeah I'd lost my dad and my brother and I was like and it, obviously, my, the situation with my father had been really bad for a long time. And I just felt really, like, cheated in one hand. But I didn't, I, I, I tried to sort of make that like a right, got to go for everything now. Do you know what I mean? Because you just don't know kind of thing. It's definitely made me more resilient, more, I, I do worry but I, about things because, of course, everyone does. But I just kind of at the same time think, that was a real problem and none of these things are actually a real problem so I, I, I guess in some ways I'm I'm less sort of I will always go back to that is a real problem Do you know that, yeah. that was because I feel like yeah. when you've lived through those kind of things that you can't fix I'm like anything else you can sort it out you just need to crack on and find a way do you know what I mean it's made me think like that it just think, puts everything else in perspective doesn't mm, it I think once you've experienced something that you can't sort out, you recognise that you can sort everything else out, really. Or, find, you know, I think it is like saying massive perspective. But you've but, also got a great positivity as well, Siobhan. Yeah, and you're I always do, I, you helping know, other people, inspiring yeah. others. 
Well, I remember, I, do you know, I remember after Dad died, because obviously I'm an actress and musical theatre actress and stuff, and I, I remember going, and I completely lost my voice. So weird, which I, I, I talk all the time and I sing all the time. And literally the day after, I completely lost my voice, like nothing, not a dicky bird. And I was going, and it was really weird. And I went, and for about three days, I was like, I'm trying all the things that you try as a professional when you're not well. And obviously I was sorting out his estate and his funeral and all of, you can imagine. And it wouldn't go. And I went to my doctor, who's this gorgeous woman. Um, she's she's raised, she was raised in Pakistan, um, and but lived here. She was educated here. So she lived here for a long time. Uh, Dr. Parveen, I love her. She's just lovely. <laughs> and I um, she's not working anymore because she's had some ill health. But we were really, she was great. She was my doctor when I had my children. And I just, you know, I was slightly like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And <laughs> she was just wonderful. And I went in to see her. And I was like, I've lost, and I literally was obviously saying, and and she said, and she just sort of looked at me and she said, what else has happened? Because she just knew. And I just completely obviously fell apart and just said, my dad died three days ago. And and I, I was just broken. I was just devastated. It was just all too much. You know, I just adored him. He was just brilliant. And I think because of how things had worked out, um with my brother and, and my mum my mother and my father subsequently parted ways and I'd ended up being everything for him so I'd kind of you worry about him socially I was sorting out all his medical stuff I was doing you know and, I, and it was like and I had my son so my son was like 18 months old and he'd been in hospital for seven weeks before he passed away and he'd always he was always like a massive part of my life we moved out of London so I was closer to my dad because I couldn't not be and uh, and I just lost it, and I was and she's and I was absolutely devastated. And I just I I can't. I was literally like I can't imagine life without him. I just can't. She just sat there and just held my hand, and she was getting really emotional. And she said, "I tell you what's incredible for me to watch." She said, "In my culture, when somebody passes away, you have like forty days of mourning, and you put sheets all over everything, and people come into the house and sit with you." And she said, "You know, you see these like videos of." Um, um, Pakistani and Indian women like wailing and crying she said and you just do all this crying for like 40 days and get it out and she said and, and you're I can see you're just trying to get on and be a good mum to Josh and sort out everything and blah, blah 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 and she was like and I'm just sat here saying Siobhan you just need to stop you just need to stop and wallow in this and go through it because you've dealt with so much up until this point and I think that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me and, and bless her and I remember her saying to me I, I, she was like, my heart is breaking for you because I can see how how much this has affected you. And she said, but I want you to know, should I remember going through this 40 days of mourning with my father? And she said, and horribly, she said, I, I really respected my father. She said, but I, I didn't really love him because I didn't really know him because we didn't have relationships like that in our culture. She said, it just wasn't how it was. And she said, and I, I know how close I know how close you are and I can see. And she was like, and, she'd sit, and I'm sat here thinking, what a wonderful thing to have experienced. And I remember thinking, do you know what? I was really lucky because we were, we were so close. Considering everything that had happened, we were so close. And, and he, we never lost him emotionally. I mean, he did some hilarious things, but we never lost him emotionally. And he was always there for us 
as a father, as much as he could be, do you know what I mean? Always and always, always. Even when he could, couldn't really look after himself, he was always there for us and would always, you know, I'd, and I'd always be like, oh God, I need to tell dad if something had gone wrong or something, do you know what I mean? That, that kind of thing. And I just think it was, so I actually am completely filled with gratitude because he was just wonderful. And like my husband talks about it now, he was just, he was just hilarious. He was a Lord Taverner. There was a hundred things he did. He was just hilarious. But um, so I am just really grateful because I just think, you know, I didn't have him for as long as I would want to, but in spite of everything, I do have absolutely priceless memories. And you made the most of your time with him as well. He travelled to see us, whatever shows we were doing, and, you know, like me and my sister, because she's an actress as well. Um, and, and we'd sort of take him and do those things. We had this hilarious thing where um, one of the times my sister was on tour with um, Fiddler on the Roof. So she'd had all her posts redirected to um, our the flat which we were renting, when we bought for, for my dad. And um, and he'd reduced open everything. So she was like, he's doing my head in, he's opening all my posts. And I was like, Sorrel, but at least he'll pile it up. It gives him something to do. You know, he's fine. And um, we went over one day. And if you join Equity, the Actors Union, they send you this little diary. So it's like a standing joke that all actors have got the same diary. It's just like a little diary, you know, like a thin one, um, but really noticeable. And it would go, you'd pay your whatever you paid a year, and then you'd get your diary and your membership card. So what had actually happened is they'd obviously sent, you know, the, the, the renewal thing for my sister and my dad had opened it and, and filled out the form himself so Sorel goes over and says to my dad why have you got have you opened my post again that's my equity diary and he went no it is my equity diary and he'd got an equity card and everything and he joined equity as in the actors union just because a form had come said pay six four pounds a year he'd gone absolutely pay six four pounds a year post it off oh it's my diary I mean for no the man had never acted in his life <laughs> I mean, but he was one of those. Like, I went over one day and he said, I booked a holiday. I was like, what? With who? It's okay, they take you on a coach. So I was like, hang on a minute, Dad, where's all the details? And someone had just cold called and he booked a walking holiday in the Alps. I mean, he couldn't walk to the kitchen. I was like, hang on a minute, Dad, there's no way. Well, I I should be absolutely fine. It says that there's assistance. I said, but not, it's, it's a walking holiday, Dad. Well, I just won't do the walking. I'll just sit by the coach. I was like, you're not, you're not going. It was like extortionately expensive, you know, like a saga type situation. But he, someone had just right, but he was just, he was just hilarious. It was like he had two mobile phone contracts going at the same time. Then he'd buy. He, we got him. A, we had to stop him driving, and I, that was awful because he'd <laughs> gone to church and we put him up after his because he couldn't do his left side very well he'd struggle with like the clutch do you know what I mean so we put him on an, in an automatic car but and he just used his good side if you know what I mean because it, it was so that was that was kind of how we got him post stroke back to driving after a long time because he needed that independence he just needed it and then he'd gone to church the church where my brother was buried where we, everything had happened in our lives you know kind of thing and he'd pulled into the car park and put it into um, reverse, not like, like I don't know, something the wrong way around. I think it was reverse, not drive. And he basically then slammed on the um, slammed on the, his foot on the pedal and gone up a bank like this with like gravestones all up here in a full, he was on full locks. He was going to try to pull out of this car park, I think. And he literally reversed in a full circle at speed round there, taking out all the gravestones narrowly missed all the parishioners and landed back in a circle so the vicar who married me called me and said hello darling I'm so sorry but 
I just need to tell you what's happened. You know, he was like, it's not his fault being he's a danger to himself and somebody else. And I feel like, you know, if anything ever happened, he'd be devastated. So we had to stop him driving, which was awful. I mean, he hated me, but I was like, dad, I love you. I'm saying this because it's too much. Well, I, sh I shall need my defense. No, 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 I need, you know. So anyway, so we got him a mobility scooter. <laughs> and then I used to get phone calls saying that he was driving it down the road. <laughs> like, literally down the middle of the road <laughs> taking my car bugger her i shall drive this scooter thing down the road <laughs> and i was like oh god just going to like the spa to get a loaf of bread or whatever and i was like dad you can't drive why why can't i <laughs> it's great that you can i can imagine there were at the time there were I points like, where you were like oh what's oh my goodness <laughs> it was it was a little bit interesting, but there's, you know, there was a million things. And then, and then, and I think I, I, I remember talking to you, Wiz, about before about his um, eating habits, because we ummed and ahed about, he didn't want any help. He was very like, I can look after myself. And then I was over one evening with my son when he was little and I witnessed, he said, I'm just going to do some dinner. Would you like some, darling? And I said, oh no, don't worry, I'll eat when I get home. So he got, he got like four lamb cutlets in the frozen in a packet thing from Waitrose. He got the frozen thing out of the freezer, put it in the microwave, the whole thing on defrost for two minutes. Then he took two of them who were like half defrosted out, put them on a plate and then put them in for a further two minutes on full power and put the other two that were half defrosted back in the freezer. Then, so I was like, what, what are you doing? Well, I shall save those for tomorrow. I said, but you can't refreeze them. Yes, I can. Don't be ridiculous. So I was, I was just watching going, oh, my God. And then so then he's so then he's eating the two lamb cutlets that have been cooked only on defrost for two minutes and full power for two minutes in the microwave. That literally still froze in the middle. He That was how he was feeding himself. At which point I was like, we need to get meals on wheels. But he was like, I am fine. You are making a fuss. It is not a problem. You know, like, but it, and he just, he just found his way. There was two coffee shops in Sandhurst where I grew, where I grew up, like run by, one was like a local community one, which would be all sort of mums that went to a toddler group would go to. So we mobility scooter it down to that one in the morning. And then the church had one attached to them in the afternoon. So that he made it, he gave himself a routine because he'd always been so successful at work. I think he just needed a routine to cope and it, the discipline never left him, even right at the end. So come hell or high water, he'd do like do the, the, the coffee shop visits twice a day. I think you are highlighting those, some of those challenges, actually. I mean, in people not wanting, understandably, to be told what to do. Yeah. Especially by loved ones or guided. Yeah. Um, but actually in situations where it is then difficult for them to take care of themselves mm -hmm. as they need to, that can be a really difficult situation to handle, can't it, as well, mm. in, really in every day? Because you're, you're already aware that you've lost so much of the person. You don't want to take away the bits that they feel that they've still got control of, even though you're looking going, you absolutely haven't. So it's really, I found it really hard, especially with regards to me being the daughter, him being the father. I yeah. guess if we were equal, I know with you guys, it's your husbands that you've had this experience with. And not that that's any easier, not in, not remotely, but I think I definitely was like, I can't tell my dad what to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm, yeah. It's weird dynamic, isn't it? Because patently, he really needed me to be that person. But um, 
it's funny, isn't it? And I think loads of people probably experience that, where they just you find yourself in this situation where you have to take control and you have to tell them, no, you can't do that. That's not safe, you know, whatever. It's really hard, I think. But we worked, you know, we worked through all of it and bless him, he was brilliant. And eventually yeah, I did get some additional help for him as well. We did just, yeah, well, we did, We never, he never had carers, but he did get, we did get like um Wiltshire Farm foods, you know, that sort of thing. Because he wouldn't have, he just, I don't want anyone plating up a, in a nurse's uniform, plating up a thing, plating up a meal, like a home for the senile. I was like, no, dad, it's not that. Because you're absolutely fine, aren't you? You know, I was, I think I knew that he was, he needed to be that person. And I also knew I could, he, when he was in hospital, the like before the end, it was very obvious he wasn't going to go home. And I was saying to him, cause I knew he wouldn't have been able to cope with any sort of home and I couldn't have done it. We were just too close. And I was saying to him, dad, what we're going to do is, you know, when you get better, cause you're always talking to them in that sense, aren't you? But even at the end of somebody's life, you know, I, I think I, I, I because, I never had a conversation with him where I we uh, where we said our goodbyes, but we just didn't ever have that conversation um, because I think I was always focused and he was always focused on well I'll, I'll be better and I'll be going home tomorrow, which you know never was going to happen. I'll be going home tomorrow. I was like yeah okay, and then it was almost like he couldn't you know, but um, so yeah we'd always kept focused on keeping like keeping him doing stuff and, and we would have I was like you know we'll move you in with us and we'll get somewhere bigger and we'll do whatever we need to do so I'm there um but he um he actually ended up with um massive internal bleeding I think he'd because he'd had been on warfarin for such a long time like a really high dose of warfarin for such a long time and um then he'd had to have his hip replacements and they'd have to take him off and and all of it you know to operate and all of these kind of things and 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 that had caused some other issues and he had cellulitis and all these other things. And he basically was bleeding massively internally and they didn't really know where from. So he kept having massive bouts of like what we would consider diarrhea, but it was just all blood and blood clots. So then his heart would just go into VF and then, you know, and then they'd give him a blood transfusion. And this went on for seven weeks and then he got pneumonia and passed away. But it was just like, it was just a constant roller coaster. And I think, but that they basically said, you know, he had had strokes quite, you know, quite young. I mean, he was, but not compared with what you guys have lived through, but do you know what I mean? He was, and because and it, it kept happening, I, I think in my heart of hearts, I knew, but because he sort of, you know, they have that sort of a, on, on reflection, they have a lightning, don't they, towards the end. He seemed to be getting better. And then I was on my way to see him and I got a phone call say you need to come now I was like I'm literally just pulling in the car park tell him to wait for me and they were like I'll tell him I'll tell him but he just pulled his tubes out so she said I don't think he wanted to hear she was like you know she said he just pulled his tubes out and he laid there and they actually think he punched his lung and choked on the feeding like the feeding stuff she said but he didn't she said I promise you he didn't struggle for it he just he just like was ready so I was going to say, it sounds it. like that was him having the last bit of control in and a way. I, I, yeah, I think it was. I, I think he knew he wasn't going to go home by this point. And I'd said, Dad, no, 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 you, you, you're not going into a home. You'll come and live with us. That'd be what. And he was like, darling, you don't want. I was like, yes, I, of course I do. I'm not having that. And I, and I literally, and I remember, because he was, you know, he was on the, there for seven weeks, so they knew me really well by that point. 
And I was just saying, just tell him to wait, tell him I'm coming, just tell him. And she just said, dump your car and run. Because she said, I literally it was within like five, you know, really quick. So he didn't suffer, but it was just, but I do think he still, so I, do, I just think that just shows you how much of the person, the, the man I've described to you, that just shows you how much of the person remains. Yeah, he, he like, obviously still retains so much of his cognitive yeah, functions. Yeah. So physically he was obviously very mm. impaired by the stroke. It sounds as if cognitively actually he, he maintains yeah. so much. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and I just think, like you say, Woods, I think that was his final, um, you know, control thing. Bless him. What do you think? I mean, he sounds such an incredible man, and and obviously you must have learned so much, not just from him, but from the experience. Yeah. What do you think are the kind of the main highlights, really, that you have from from things that I've learned from my dad? I just think it's it's that you know your your destiny is defined by nothing other than what you choose to do with your life. I really believe that because when when I look at the rest of like, where he came from and who he became, you know, like he just completely changed his situation, completely changed our situation, completely changed himself. That's a major thing, you know, That and he just, he was, he, he worked really hard and he expected us to work really hard. Not, there was never any level of... Um, I never, I, and I think I learned that you can be firm but kind as well because that was a massive thing. Like that is the person I would have ever, I would have wanted to disappoint least in the whole world with anything. I, I was never, there was never a second when I wasn't uh, completely assured of how proud he was of us or there was never anything like that. As powerful as he was in his work and, you know, what he'd done with his life and stuff, um, he was still resolutely kind not just to me, to everybody, you know, absolutely everybody. And I just think he always kept humour in, in even the worst situation. He was just, I mean, I was like, you're just absolutely. I think it, it is, resilience is probably the only thing you can do, you know. I just think in any second, and, and I think it's a, a, life is a, a constant, uh, like a repetition, of, isn't it, of making a decision between something that will move you forward to better the situation or, or something that will keep you safe. Do you know what I mean? Which isn't always the right choice. And I just think he definitely, just through, through the way he lived, um, taught me to just keep making potentially, you know, the scary decision that pushes you. Do you know, do you know what I mean? And I just think, and, and, it, and it has just made me realise that, you know, like, gosh, he died 15 years ago, coming up 16 years ago. And it, it's incredible, you know, the impact these people have. I mean, literally, he sat in front of me on my piano, I've got pictures of him everywhere, but this is my dad. We have pictures of dad all over the house. And he still, like, he's still, there's another one here of him with my sister. He just, he's everywhere. And I, and it feels like he's never gone anywhere. Look, him and my sister. It's not the cutest picture in the world. Well, Siobhan, you know, it's been fabulous listening to you. And I feel like I've got to know your dad. <laughs> yeah. I think this conversation today is the first time that I've met mm. you. And the first time that I've heard about your dad, but it feels like the conversation today has been a real tribute to your father. Yeah, he was brilliant, bless him. There'll be so many people that are living through that and 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 looking at, you know, caring for a family member mm. and for a father or a mother. And I think some of those things that you've said and, you know, keeping that kind of humour, even in the, the darkest of times, 
is can be difficult but it's really important to to have that and yeah and it, and, and ultimately my my all my memories are positive even though it was really shitty for a long time genuinely all my memories are positive you've obviously never allowed yourself to be a victim to oh, the no. circumstances and the deep tragedies that you and your family mm. and you personally have faced mm. so thank you so much for yeah, your time well, today welcome girls honestly it was a pleasure thank um, you so much my loves lovely to meet you anyway bye Thank you so much for listening to this episode of On A Good Day. Please do share this podcast with others who may need it right now in their lives. As we know from experience, it can feel really isolating and difficult to find others in a similar situation. We'd be really grateful if you also rated the show and gave us a review as this really helps us to be easier to find. You can also follow us on social media. We are on Instagram, onagood.day, x, onagood underscore day, and we're on Facebook too. All the details are in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe to, if you haven't already, to be sure that you do not miss an episode. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate it. And go and have a really good day.